Boss Level is sponsored by Talented. You know how all the Hollywood celebrities have their own agents? Well, Talented is essentially based on the same idea. It's a new management agency for developers and members of software development teams. They help you score the job you want. I'd want to join Talented just so that if someone told me their company is hiring, I could say, yeah, call my agent. Or, or even better, yeah, just um, have your people call my people. Even if you're not currently looking for a job, it's still a good idea to join the network. Because as a member, you'll gain access to their events, such as exclusive workshops on tech topics or exclusive visits to interesting companies. Membership is free. Go to talented.fi to sign up and get your personal agent. That's talented.fi. Welcome to a new episode of Boss Level Podcast. For this episode, I sat down for a chat with Tim Huang. Tim has been labeled by Forbes magazine as the busiest man on the internet. First, he started RaffleCon, which stands for Rolling on the Floor Laughing Conference. It was a conference that studied internet culture through memes. And a quick side note, the links to the memes that we talk about are available in the show notes. After RaffleCon, he founded the Awesome Foundation for Arts and Sciences. The foundation's sole aim is to promote awesomeness in the universe. It has donated over $2.5 million to various projects through grants. The foundation operates through autonomous chapters that independently fund the grants and make decisions on recipients. He then started a law firm called Robot, Robot and Huang to study how lawyers could be automated. Currently, he advises Google on the impacts of artificial intelligence on public policy. Tim has done a lot considering he just turned 30. At the end of the interview, I asked him what his next project is going to be, and his answer was not exactly the kind of answer you normally get. Enjoy the interview. My name is Tim Huang. Uh, I'm a researcher and technologist and lawyer uh, based in San Francisco. Um, and uh, I guess I uh, have a hard time holding down a real job. So <laughs> I've worked on a lot of projects in the last few years. Um, you know, I, I drove through the American Midwest trying to find the world's largest balls of twine. Uh, I started a thing <laughs> called the Awesome Foundation for the Arts and Sciences. Uh, and uh, more recently, I've been um, researching the political and social impact of artificial intelligence. Uh, and I advise Google on those issues now. Okay, uh, before we get to to the AI stuff, uh, let's talk a little about the, the 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 interesting projects that you have ongoing. So, actually, Forbes magazine called you the busiest man on the internet. <laughs> That's uh, definitely an exaggeration. <laughs> <laughs> but let's let's explore some of the things that warrant that. There may be warrant that title. So, so first, uh, one of the things that you've worked on some years ago was RolfCon. That's right. Yeah. So, in many ways, I think that was kind of I see it now as sort of one of the first projects I worked on. Yeah. Um, I was uh, in university at the time, and um, basically me and my friends were into a webcomic that I think is might be popular in Europe uh, called XKCD, yeah, yeah. which is this kind of technology uh, webcomic. And yes. um, the guy, basically, I was living in Boston at the time, and he moved to Boston um, uh, when we were in university. And he basically was like, oh, if uh, you want to hang out with me, I'm going to just be in this park at this time. 
And so me and my friends went and it was like completely crazy. So it's like hundreds of people were there. There were people who like flew in like, you know, from Europe to come and see this guy. <laughs> and uh, afterwards, me and my friends were saying, this is really weird because this guy isn't, he's like not traditionally famous, right? This was like 2007, 2008. And like he has a huge, huge base of people who really are excited about him. Uh, but if he was walking on the street, probably no, not a whole lot of people really recognize him. And so RaffleCon was basically our idea of what if we got everybody who was like that together for a conference uh, to talk about kind of the past, present, and future of uh, internet memes and web culture. So basically, this was a biennial conference that happened. Yeah. So we did one in 2008, one in 2010, and one in 2012. But um, there's a number of people we brought. So uh, Alexis Ohanian, who is one of the co-founders of Reddit, uh, yeah. came uh, the guy who designed Clippy, that little assistant that used to be in Microsoft Word back in the day. Uh, the one that a lot of people hate. Hated, yeah, yes. right, exactly. He, he publicly apologized. So. <laughs> really? Um, on that awesome. note, we, we also got the Comic Sans guy, the Double Rainbow guy. Um, uh, you know, there was this t-shirt that was that was really uh, kind of um, became a meme on, on uh, Amazon. That was the Three Wolf Moon uh, t-shirt. It was this kind of wacky T-shirt with this moon and three wolves on it, and uh, the 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 meme became to leave all these parody reviews on Amazon, yeah, uh, yeah. talking about how it gave you superpowers and all these other things. So we did a panel with the people who designed the T-shirt, the people who manufactured the T-shirt, and the person who left the first Amazon review. Um, <laughs> and so we did a lot of things like that. We did a panel with anonymous, uh, not, uh, moderated by anonymous. So wow. that was kind of the types of guests that we brought. And I remember reading about uh, you being on the phone with the agent of Grumpy Cat. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's <laughs> but right. did you uh, ever have Grumpy Cat at the conference? Oh, we were never able to get Grumpy Cat, unfortunately. Oh, I think he was he was really busy, right? Like he's, he, he, was, he was really kind of on a rocket ship at the time we were trying to do the conference. So I think it was difficult to get him. But uh, we definitely saw it got, we got definitely a lot more professional in the years that we did it. Yeah, and I, I think it's, it's amazing. It's crazy that a cat can have an agent. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I read somewhere that the uh, the owner of the cat is actually like makes a living from the cat. Uh, yeah, it's, I think it's that's a the good, kind of decent living. <laughs> yeah, I think that's the really strange uh, outcome of a lot of this internet culture stuff, particularly in kind of like 2010 and 2012, where people were like, "Really, this person can like make a living doing this?" But I thought it was amazing. I mean, I think it's one of the weird and great things about the internet. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so, how did you get so interested in memes? Well, you know, I had basically grown up on the internet. Yeah. Um, so I was on LiveJournal. I was on Zanga back in the day uh, and spent a lot of time on IRC. And so I'd always been really excited about uh, sort of internet communities, right? Like finding your people online. And uh, I think memes were a really interesting and fun part of that because people always saw these things kind of move through the internet, right? I thought it was really interesting that, you know, someone would not know about this. And then, you know, a week later, everybody would know about it. And what was interesting is that often on the internet, you know, these people were just like so-and-so guy or that and that girl, right? They're sort of these like characters. And what I got really interested in was the human story behind that, right? Because it has to happen to someone. Yes. And, yes. and that's just the most surreal experience. And so that's one of the things that really got RaffleCon going, I think. I remember uh, this, uh, one of the memes that are uh, like where this guy, this ridiculously photogenic guy, oh, I think yes, it was that's called. Right. He was in the race, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. Yeah. The yeah. guy racing, running in a running race. Yeah. And he just like a, a photo taken of, of him during that race. Mm -hmm. And he should be looking sweaty and, and, and like not that good, but mm -hmm. he was like, he looked perfect. Yeah, he looked great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that became a meme. And I remember like, 
there was an interview of that guy somewhere. Uh-huh, yeah. it's, it's crazy to like, of course, also to him that like suddenly he's all over the internet. Right. And he everywhere. didn't do anything. He didn't do right. anything. He was just <laughs> running a race. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I think that that's a, that's like a really interesting aspect of the internet. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah. And, and, you know, it's not always fun. Right. Yeah, I think that's the most interesting yeah. thing was basically people talking about like, oh yeah, it was super weird. Right. Like, because I got to meet like so-and-so famous politician or got to work with this celebrity or whatever. And then I think there were the people who were just like, let this stop. Right. Like this is the worst thing that ever happened to me. And I think it is really interesting that the internet can be like this, like force for good. And then also clearly like this, like force for not so good. Yeah. <laughs> so. yeah, yeah. And, and I think like to a lot of people who are not that versed in internet culture it's it is so weird to see these memes when you just like you see this glimpse of a meme Mm -hmm. you just see this one photo and every like there's a lot of people laughing at it and you're like what how is this funny like (laughs) why is this funny in any way right and it's so much faster now like even when we started in 2008 it felt like you could actually do a conference about memes and like (laughs) by the time you do the conference like things were still pretty relevant Right. But I think if you did it now, like you do like it'd be like, hey, we're going to do this conference. And by the time everybody showed up, they'd be like, who are all these people? Right. It's like the meme kind of ecosystem moves so fast now. It's almost impossible to do like a conference around. I feel. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And what's uh, another really interesting aspect of this is combining memes. And like several memes are combined to make something completely new again. And Mm -hmm. then you have to be like very into all sorts of memes to be able to understand this new meme. That's a combination of old memes. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, and, and that's actually a really interesting part of it is, um, you know, what we thought of as like internet culture, like back in the day, was yeah. like this very particular form of communication where like if you weren't part of the conversation after a while, it became like impossible to understand yes. what was going on. And I kind of feel like that that's the case now, but like with like everything on the internet, like yeah. everything is meme-like in the way it spreads online. So Yeah, and I, th- I think one of the things that has happened is that like, Previously, or in the early days of the internet, the memes were generated on IRC channels, mm-hmm. which was a very small portion of like like of of a population, or mm-hmm. even of the like users of the internet. But now, like the memes are like they happen on Reddit or they happen on Twitter, mm-hmm. where a lot yeah. more people are exposed to the the memes than than on IRC channels. That's back right. In the day. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's like much more broadly shared. I read this awesome article by this guy um, Nick Douglas a few years ago. That was basically looking at um, basically uh, the, so the most popular content on Facebook are basically these images with like text written on them. And it's basically like not like young millennials sharing it, quote unquote, but like older people. And like they're, they have their own memes that just are circulating through the Web. And I think that's like a really fascinating thing to consider is just like the Internet has now enabled everybody to have their own like super strange meme culture. So. that's awesome okay so but uh in 2012 the uh, rolf con started getting more and more professional and you start you felt that you don't want to spend more time on it or yeah i think that's that's right um you know i think by 2012 uh a number of things were happening on the internet um you know i think one of them was that it was getting kind of much more professionalized um which made it more difficult to actually do these types of conferences um you know i think there was just a lot more like middlemen there was a lot more kind of commercialization of it. So it didn't felt as it didn't feel as fun as it used to. I think sure. that's one important part. I think a second part though is that actually what we meant by the internet culture became like so broad in that period of time. Like by the end of last year, the the last year we were doing the conference, we were like, should we get, you know, like so Shaquille O'Neal was like huge on Twitter in the early days. 
And we were like, should we bring Shaquille O'Neal? Or like, does Justin Bieber qualify? He's like big on the internet, but not exactly like internet famous in the way we mean. Yes. And so I think that was also really interesting is like what, what we meant by memes also completely changed in that time. So I, I think it for a number of reasons, it made sense to kind of like say like we've did this and then, you know, we should let other people uh, do their do their own events. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And by the way, like, where was this like hosted? Was it in Boston or? Uh, so it was in Boston, yeah. So yeah. the the three times we did it, they were all at uh, MIT. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Great. So which is really fun because we could bring all these academics in as well, and so it was really <laughs> funny having like you know these leading legal minds like debating with people who are like you know just randomly huge on the internet. So. <laughs> Uh, were you studying at MIT or uh, I was at Harvard, Harvard okay. uh, but it was very funny we, we originally pitched the Harvard administration on doing this conference and they were like well you need to have everybody file out release forms and liability and all this kind of stuff and it was like, very difficult to do and then we went down the street and we talked to the MIT administration they're like this is amazing like when can you do this like well, come on in and so it was just a it was a much more welcoming environment I would say at MIT <laughs> okay. for this kind of thing yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah sure did you finish your studies at Harvard I did yeah so yeah. I graduated in 2008 okay yeah. okay great uh so Another interesting project that you did was the, uh, or you founded the Awesome Foundation. Yes, that's right. Well, the full title is the Awesome Foundation for the Arts and Sciences. Okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and, and let's talk a little about that. So sure. what is it? <laughs> so the Awesome Foundation is a really simple idea. You basically get 10 people together. Uh, each of them agrees to give you $100 a month. And everybody basically pools all that money into a grant, which is $1,000. And that's given to a project that supports awesomeness in the universe. And that's the only restriction. Uh, and so it's a project that we also started when I was living in Boston. Um, and, you know, it spread really uh, surprisingly. So we basically, uh, I think I last checked, I think I last checked, it was basically, I think we've given away about $2.5 million in $1,000 grants. Crazy. And that's we've got crazy. like, I think over 80 chapters around the world now. And it's just kind of its own self-organized phenomenon. How do you like, how do you run that? Or, or like, how how is it... How does all of this happen? How do you start a chapter? How does like, do you ever, any, like, do you ever have people who are trying to kind of like get money out of it that they shouldn't be getting out of it or like? Yeah. You know, we've been really surprised. So, so in the early days when we started this thing, we just thought it was going to be a Boston phenomenon. Sure. And, uh, and we, I remember the first time we got an email from someone saying like, we'd like to join the, and become an official chapter of the Awesome Foundation for the Arts and Sciences. Like, do we need to fill out any paperwork or what's like the interview process? And like, I just turned to the people I was working with and I was like, what, what do we do? We have no plan here. Absolutely no plan. And he, uh, and, and everybody basically agreed. We basically said like, look, if you get 10 people together, then you have an Awesome Foundation chapter and you get to keep, you get, you become an official chapter. We put you on the internet. Uh, on our website, and then you just start operating. And, you know, it's actually really surprising. Um, you know, we haven't really had uh, any examples, I would say, over the last few years of someone really trying to, like, abuse the system, mm -hmm. either on the grantee side or the grantor side. And we have a couple of theories for that. I mean, on on the grantor's side, so people giving money, we call them awesome trustees. Yeah. Um, it kind of seems like maybe if it's if it's if it seems really difficult to get ten people together, and like getting ten people together means that things are going to be some somewhat reasonable, and so like that actually acts as its own check on the system. That sure. we say if you have to bring together ten people and get them organized enough to do this, like that ends up being a really powerful filter for for relatively kind of reasonable people, or at least people who are crazy enough to do this but reasonable in the way <laughs> they run things. Yes. And then on the grantee side, I, we, I was thinking about it too, right? Because the minute we started this thing started to spread. Um, 
people were like, people are going to try to rip this off right away. And I guess our theory is that like $1,000 is enough to make you care about it, but not so much that if you really wanted to steal money, that this is the, this is the best way yeah, of doing it. There are right? better ways of getting There's more like money. better, more yeah. way. Yeah. And so I think that ends up being a surprising limiter is that basically in like the $1,000 zone, it's enough to power projects, but the money isn't high enough to kind of evoke all of these like bad incentives into the system. Um, at least that's what we found. That's very interesting. Is there a, is there a chapter in Finland? Uh, no, there isn't. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So that's something for, for, uh, there's plenty of listeners in Finland for this podcast. So that's, <laughs> that's something that someone could start. Okay, great. Uh, how about some of the projects that, uh, that have come out of the awesome foundations grants? Uh, sure. So it's a huge range of different things, sure, right? Because sure. the only criteria for whether or not you should get a grant is whether or not it forwards awesomeness in the universe, right? <laughs> I love that. And so, uh, <laughs> and so, so it's actually really funny. So every chapter ends up funding whatever it thinks is awesome. So some people fund more kind of like, you know, traditionally what you call, might call charitable things, right? So they're supporting, you know, food kitchens, they're supporting, um, you know, charitable giving, they're supporting educational programs, that kind of thing. Um, and then I think there's two other kinds of really interesting things that we see come out of it. So one of them is just like grants that are just like crazy, right? So the DC uh, group actually ended up funding um, this project that I really loved, which is, um, uh, so do you know Indiana Jones? Yep. So Indiana Jones, there's a scene where he's running away from a boulder, right? Yeah. And so they funded a set of artists to basically put together that experience in an alleyway. So they would give you a hat and a whip and like the jacket and the Indiana Jones music would play while they rolled the big boulder towards you and you would run away from it. So like there's like there's a bunch of kind of weird kind of art projects like yeah, that. And then there's also the things that are like in the intersection, which I think is some of the most exciting stuff that we've seen. Um, right. So we funded someone who was working on a project called uh, Serval in Australia. And it was a really fun project because he was looking for a prototype money to, to build it. Um, and couldn't get any grant front funding from anyone. And so basically what it is, is it's a little kind of device that basically can keep a cell phone network up, uh, even when the cell phone networks are down. So he's kind of basically thinking that this might be an emergency tool that you basically plug a battery into these devices and put them out in the middle of the desert, or you put them into a city in the case of a disaster to keep communications up. So that's like super cool technologically. Wow. And it also does social good. Um, and what's really interesting is that the, the Australian government ended up funding him to do more work on that project. And I think that's kind of a really interesting example because, you know, traditional foundations, they tend to have a lot of overhead, right? Even whether, whether they're giving out $1,000 or a million dollars, they will spend the same amount of money getting the grant out the door. And so what's really interesting is the Awesome Foundation, because it basically has no overhead, can fund all sorts of projects that like wouldn't, no one would ever fund if you were an institution. I absolutely love the idea behind the, the Awesome Foundation <laughs> and all, all the things that you've been able to do through it. And, and I think also like thinking about it, that the like 10 people and a thousand dollars and you talking about the, the amount of overhead, I think also like the thousand dollars is something that you don't probably, you don't get into these huge disputes on how to like distribute the money because the money is not that big. Mm -hmm. Like those individual sums that you give out are not that huge. Mm -hmm. So it's actually easier even for the, for the chapters to make decisions because they like, they, they send one out and then they'll do another one fairly right. soon and so on. Yeah, no. And I think that that's actually a really interesting part of the process is that all the chapters have come up with decision-making methods that work yeah. for them. Right. Yeah. Because like when people are like, how do you start a chapter? We're like, there's no there's no real rules here. So like we only can provide them with like examples of how different chapters make decisions. But I think the the amount of money is actually a really interesting part of it. Right. Where it's like enough of a contribution that you do kind of think about it before you yes. give away the money. 
But if, you know, the project doesn't work out or you don't really agree with what you guys funded, right? Like it ends up being that you like are kind of okay with it, right? And so like that is actually really interesting because I think it encourages experimentation where people are willing to just kind of be like, oh yeah, that sounds like, let's let's just make something crazy happen, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Great. Uh, How much time do you need to spend on it nowadays? Well, I think that's the really interesting thing. So people always say like, you know, so what do you do with the Austin Foundation? And um, I always joke, I, I always say I'm, I'm a provost at the Institute for Higher Awesome Studies. Um, but like <laughs> actually in practice, I really don't spend too, too much time on it, which is really interesting because there actually is no centralizing force within this organization, right? Largely, it is a lot of autonomous chapters all running under the same banner. And we do come together for a summit once a year. Uh, and there is a group that has formed to help chapters get started. Um, but largely th- that that is not necessarily like a managing organization. So no chapter really needs to check in, right? Um, it's just designed to be as kind of autonomous as possible. Do you have like digital tools that you use to to communicate between the chapters? Yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, it's nothing super sophisticated, right? Like we're not even at the level of like Slack. It's like <laughs> okay. honestly like it's email. an email list. Yeah. It's an email list. And then we have built a little bit of an internal system to manage grants. But that's that's really the extent of it. Uh, and I think if you want to be really old fashioned, we also have a wiki as well. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> Which wiki is it? Like, uh, it's uh, I I think someone just did an instance. I forget. I think it's Media Wiki. Okay, yeah, okay. that's right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, awesome. Okay, great. Uh, another really interesting thing that that you did in 2010, you founded a law firm called Robot Robot and Huang. Mm-hmm. And well, as it turns out, it's not really a law firm, but uh, I have to say that I laughed out loud when I read the, the name of the company. <laughs> well, <that's great. laughs> but uh, so what was the point that you were trying to make with that? Mm. So I do want it to be a real law firm at some point. Yeah. Uh, I need to look into it. But um, <laughs> at the time, you know, so I had always really been inter- interested in this intersection between uh, the technology and law, not just how law shapes technology. So you think about things like copyright or privacy or, or what have you. But also the other way around, right? How basically technology might shape the practice of law. Because um, I had, uh, when I was in high school, I had interned at a law office. And I remember thinking, like, it seems like a lot of this can really be automated. But I really wanted to figure out how to do it. So I basically yeah. went to law school to see whether or not it was possible to automate lawyers. <laughs> That's a great Because uh, I figured the easiest way to figure out how to do it was just to become one yourself, right? <laughs> and, um, and so I got really uh, interested in this idea. And I figured, well, what's the easiest way of trying to find other people who are interested in the same topic? And, um, you know, it was a very late night one night and I came home and I was like, all right, let's just put this together. And so I basically put together a, a, a law firm website for a law firm called Robot, Robot and Huang, which is a law firm with two robots, two servers, to be precise, and then my, myself. And, um, and it was really interesting to hear how people responded to it. There's a lot of people who got in touch, who I think got the joke and said, oh, yeah, it'd be cool to talk about this intersection. Um, there were lawyers who got in touch, like who didn't get what was going on. And the best part is actually the American Bar Association. So the Lawyers Association in the US, they wrote an article on their blog basically saying it's like, it's unclear if Mr. Huang could face any sanctions for pretending to be a lawyer. And I was just like, whoa, 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 whoa. Um, and so it's just, it ended up being this really interesting way of both finding people to work with and, and collaborate with and build a community around. Um, and then also as a way of kind of like kind of provoking this sort of discussion. Sure. And there's a lot of investigation now going into this and um, and it's really fun seeing it kind of develop further. Yeah. So uh, can we talk a little about that? Do, sure. like, do, you, do you know about the direction or where, we are, where we're at kind mm. of with, with this? 
So I think there's two really interesting dynamics in the space right now. So one of them is that a lot of companies are thinking increasingly about how to automate the law or bring software to the law. So there's a really cool company, for example, in uh, San Francisco called Ironclad. And what they do is basically they're working on legal service automation, legal process automation. So they basically have someone, they go to like a law firm or a company with a legal department and say, what are the processes you do? And then they build kind of a, a system for automating some of those tasks. Um, and, and that's actually a really kind of key core piece of technology. So I think one interesting thing is that there's a lot of businesses increasingly trying to kind of get into the space. Um, I think the second one is that also lawyers themselves are starting to think about like, there's got to be a better way than doing what we're doing. Because I, I don't know if you've ever had the, the misfortune of having to work with a lawyer, but it's a very complex oh, process. It's a very expensive process. And many times it feels like it's really unclear what kind of service that you're actually getting. And, and often that, that way that a lot of lawyers have actually set up their business, which is hourly billing, right, actually gives them some perverse incentives, right? Because they want to sure. be efficient, but not so efficient that they lose money, right? Because at a certain point, technology will reduce the amount of money that they make. And that, I think, has caused the legal industry to be slower than it might otherwise be in, in adopting a lot of these two technologies. So I think this ends up being a big question, right? It's a question of whether or not the sort of new companies can establish themselves and get adoption and push against kind of the, the core kind of incumbent industry, getting them either to move ahead or, or move aside, you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I think one of the reasons that people want to buy services from kind of traditional law firms mm -hmm. is, is also that they're like... And and on top of the uh, the like for whatever contract or or NDA or whatever like documents that that they produce, uh, you also have someone that you can call afterwards if you have mm -hmm. trouble with it or if if there's something that you don't understand or so on. Yeah, right. And right. I think that's that's one of the like one of the things that people pay for when they get a lawyer. That's right. And not 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 just the outputs. Right. Whereas the like if you were able to automate a lot of this stuff, you would only get the outputs. That's right. Yeah. And I think that's actually a really key part of it, right? Like I think the law firms of the future, they won't be entirely automated, yeah. right? Like I think there's some basic tasks that will become automated, right? Because they're just so standardized. Sure. But I think in large part, the human will always sort of be in the loop in the legal profession. Um, I think what's just going to happen is that you'll have these practices that if I did robot, robot Huang for real, it would be me as a lawyer. But I would use automation extensively. Exactly. And in many exactly. cases, like I would just be sort of the the human API, if you will, for the machines to work through. Yes. Know? Yes. So. Or even you would be like the human AI behind the chat bot. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, so I think there there is that. And so I think that's that's actually the really interesting part of it is um, how far can this automation go? Right. Because I think you know there's some basic stuff which I think is pretty interesting, which is like, oh, take a look at this contract. Can you use, for example, machine learning to identify where are the weird traps inside the contract, right? Like that seems like it'd be a really interesting tool for both a lawyer, but also just for like a regular person to use. But I'm also really interested in the idea of like, could you eventually create like autonomous corporations, right? So like legal entities that have programming that just causes them to like behave on their own and like develop and generate contracts on their own um, and stuff like that, I think is like also really interesting. So uh, let's talk a little more about that. So contracts are, of course, tied to some kind of like business aims or something that they're right. trying to go for. So what's your idea? Like, would, would there like be people who are doing the business, but then there's the like autonomous part is doing the contracts and all the bureaucracy around it? Right. Oh, that's the idea. Well, yeah. And I would love to see kind of what the experiments could be. Yeah, right? yeah. So like imagine writing a, a, a robot or a piece of software that basically goes into the internet and says, okay, 
I'm going to hire someone to come up with a business plan for me. Ah. Right. And then they write a business plan. It takes that business plan and then shares it with someone else and say, tell me if this business plan is a good business plan. And if a human says, okay, that's good. Then it takes that business plan and says, okay, break this business down into a set of steps that someone could execute and like fill in this form. Right. And then takes each one of those steps and distributes them out. So I think stuff like that is very interesting where there's certain things that the machine can't do. But there are ways of kind of leveraging humans in order to kind of keep it moving. Um, there's a cool art project that I, I still really love from a few years back that was um, it was this black box that you would buy on eBay. And what it would do is basically you're contractually obligated when you purchase it to plug it back in when you got it. And so when you plugged it back in, there's a power cable and Ethernet cable. And once you did that, it would immediately put itself back on eBay for auction. And what was interesting is that people would basically bid up the price of this object as it moved around. So there's financial incentives to keep this object moving. And I thought that was really, really, really interesting method, right? Where basically the automation was sort of using human incentives as a way of continuing to propel itself forwards. (laughs) Is it still on eBay? Do you know? Uh, I don't know. I'll have to check. I lost track of that project a few years back. But it's just like the example is just like mind blowing. It's such a cool idea. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and and I think, you know, I mean, there's going to be good uses of the technology and also like bad uses of the technology. Um, I was talking with someone recently about, um, are you familiar with Tor at all? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so for maybe listeners. Yeah, sure. Uh, so, sure. so Tor basically is, uh, it's a, a, they call it the onion router. So it's a way of anonymizing your uh, internet traffic. And the idea is basically lots of people run all these nodes across the world. And so when you send a request for something through the internet, your request passes through a lot of these nodes randomly. So anyone analyzing the traffic has difficulty trying to figure out where the traffic is coming from. Um, And uh, I was talking to a friend recently who's a tax lawyer. And I was like, well, it'd be really amazing to kind of create like a system where you could set up a legal node that would just buy and sell assets randomly. And so what it would do is you could anonymize who owns an asset at any given time. So say someone's trying to sue you to come after your house. Right, you might basically put your uh, object into this cloud. So if it ever came after you, could be like, I actually don't own it anymore. It's just somewhere in this. The legal title to this object is just owned somewhere in the universe, right? And like, <laughs> and like immediately, my friend was like, "But yeah, the, the problem with that is that it's like it's only good for bad purposes. Right? Like, it's <laughs> yeah. like largely for tax evasion. <laughs> so, so I think we're going to see a bunch of different uses of the technology, both good, good and bad. <laughs> so. That's an interesting concept. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so. Those are some of the projects that you've been working on uh, on in the past. So uh, what have you been up to more recently? So uh, I think one of the things I'm most interested in right now is machine learning. Um, So there's been a lot of hype around the technology. And I think what's really interesting is that like the real research that's going on below the surface, there's Mm -hmm. some really amazing and interesting um, opportunities and, and also some really big challenges ahead in the technology. And, uh, and so I've been really fascinated by this idea, both on like how people talk about it in the public space, but also like what's happening in the, in the technological field as well. Sure. Um, what kind of things are you most interested about? Mm. So I think the two things that are most interesting to me, so one of them is uh, what's known as adversarial examples in the machine learning space. So this will take a little bit of explanation if sure, that's okay. Sure, so, that's, that's fine. Um, so to, for, to give a little bit of background, so machine learning um, is a subfield within artificial intelligence. Yeah, artificial intelligence is something that's been going on for a very, very long time, right? Arguably, it's from the 1950s, if not even earlier in some ways. And uh, machine learning is something that just sort of recently has become hot in the history of AI. And, and, and actually, like, uh, why do you think, why has it become such a big thing 
in the recent years mm. because I think a lot of the theory behind it is very old. Yeah, quite old actually. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's a couple of things. So there's maybe two things to point out. One of them is that AI has kind of moved in these boom and bust cycles. Um, what's known as an AI winter. Because what seems to happen every single time AI becomes hot is that everybody really oversells what yes. AI can do. Yes. And then eventually people are like, wait, this is like terrible. <laughs> this is never going to work. Yeah. And then like it just crashes. And it like will usually like reduce all the investment for companies, all the investment for research, all these sorts of things. Uh, and it goes through kind of a period of like nothing. And then there's some breakthroughs that get people excited about again. So I think that's that's one thing. I think the second thing, though, is like some some of these ideas – um, just weren't possible until recently, right? So um, Because of CPU or GPU? Uh, or, and, yeah, uh, so computational power is one yes, of them. I think yeah. data is another one of yeah. them, right? Like I think there's a lot of just like basic resources yes. that if you ask some people about, you know, neural nets in particular, which we can get into, they would have told you even like a 15 years ago, like that's a dead end. It'll never work. We tried it. It was considered like uh, like nothing was going to happen in that space, and it was only because we had the computational power and the data that you know this this thing actually found out like it actually worked. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. You were talking about machine learning and how that's interesting. Ah. Uh, yes. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean, uh, so so just to give a little background, I mean, so machine learning is right this this subfield within AI. Yes. It's all focused on kind of algorithms that get better the more data that you show them. That's the basic example. And um, one of the sub-subfields, right? So there's AI, then there's machine learning. And then even deeper within machine learning is, is the study of neural nets, right? Yes. Which is like a very particular kind of machine learning technique that's kind of roughly inspired by the brain. It's not really a brain, but it's roughly inspired by it. And it turns out that this particular technique turns out to be really, really good at doing all sorts of tasks that computer scientists thought were basically impossible to do, right? So the greatest example is computer vision. Where, um, you know, in the past, you're like, how do you get like a computer to recognize a cat in an image? And like in the past, it was like, okay, I'm going to need like 200 PhDs, like a billion dollars and 10 years. And we don't even know if it's going to get done then. Um, but it turns out neural nets are like really good at solving this problem. And I, and I think the traditional approach for that would be to kind of try to define the characteristics of a cat. That's right. And then then trying to recognize cats based on those characteristics. But, that's right. But that's not how neural net works. No, and this is actually a really interesting thing. So, you know, a lot of big, I would say Silicon Valley companies right now are actually having to re-educate a lot of their programmers. Yeah. Because machine learning and deep learning, it almost changes the entire cognitive style of programming. Whereas, so in the past, what you do is you get a bunch of smart people together and they would themselves say like, okay, how do we solve this problem? How would I solve this problem? And then you would write these explicit rules into the computer, basically being like, if you encounter X stimulus, then take Y action. The weird thing with machine learning um, and deep learning in particular is basically that you, you show the machine lots of examples and then you try to verify whether or not the machine has learned how to do the task. Right, and and I think that's a that's a very different kind of approach, um, and uh, and and is is a really big shift I think in in how people think about how to program machines. Still, one of the problems that we have with this approach is that we need we still need people to be able to label the cats, label the data in the first place, mm -hmm. so that we can like teach the the neural net. Yeah, that's right. You need to basically give the machine stimulus, right? Yeah. It has to know whether or not it got its prediction right or it got it wrong. Yeah. Um, and we do that. That's that's possible through a variety of different ways. Um, you know, either a human tags things or, uh, you know, for example, when you mark things as spam on the internet, like typically that's training these models now that are basically learning what is spam and what's not spam. 
Um, and one interesting example will be actually when we have actually uh, machine learning models talking to machine learning models, right? Where the machine learning model says like, this seems right, this seems wrong. Um, and so I think that's, that's a really interesting uh, side of it. Yeah, so you don't need that much label data up front to be able to train your neural nets. That's right, yeah. Although I will say that doesn't necessarily mean that there's no human effort, right? So it will take a lot of energy often to try to get these models to talk to each other in the right way and designing those is, is actually a big challenge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, and so, I, I mean, to, to go back to your original question on kind of what I think is most interesting in this space, um, particularly for these deep neural nets, uh, one of the really interesting things that you have for, say, computer vision systems is that you can, you can fool them often in ways that are very counterintuitive. So uh, there's a great researcher by the name of Ian Goodfellow, who's the one who came up with generative adversarial networks. And he's, he's really interested in exploring what's known as adversarial examples, where, where basically what you do is you can show, for example, a picture of what looks to be a panda to human eyes for uh, a human. But like when a machine, a computer vision model looks at it, it says like, oh, this is definitely like a monkey, right? Um, there's also these other examples that have been done where you show a computer what looks to human eyes like complete noise, just garbage. Um, and it, the computer will be like, oh, this is definitely a lion, right? And I think that sort of stuff is like very, very interesting, which is um, what are, wh how do we actually understand how these systems are seeing things? And like, what, what does that create in terms of potential, for example, security vulnerabilities in the way these machines work? One of the things that I've always seen as fascinating about neural nets is that they don't actually recognize a cat. They've, they've just like, from data, they've seen that these kind of things usually mean that this is a cat. Yeah, I think... But they don't really understand that this is really a cat. That's right, yeah. So like pa <laughs> pattern recognition is yes, the right way of thinking yeah. about it. Very, very, maybe very sophisticated pattern recognition, but that's ultimately yeah. at, at a deep level what a lot of this is. Yeah. Um, there's and, one great example from Google that came out 2015. And basically, they were trying to figure out... So for these deep neural nets, one of the big challenges is trying to figure out like how exactly are these systems making decisions? And so the, the whole idea was, we'll show a computer absolute noise and basically ask it, like, what would I need to do to this image to make it look more like, say, a banana? And then you would edit the image slightly, and then you'd show it again, say, does this look like a banana? If, if it isn't, tell, tell me how I'd have to change it to make it look more and more like a banana. And so what happens is they called it basically getting the machine to hallucinate, but it allows them to see what a computer thinks an object looks like, right? But one of the interesting outcomes of this, right, is that they were like, okay, computer, show us what you think a, a barbell looks like, like a weight. And what they found was that the weight always appeared with like a little arm attached to it, right? Yeah, yeah, and yeah. it was really interesting because like, it was like, oh, the computer has picked up the kind of a slightly wrong idea of what this is because it was only trained on images of people holding the barbell. So naturally, it just thought that when you're looking for this thing, that this other shape that is an arm would be associated with it. So I think there's still lots of these kind of interesting problems that need to get worked out. And I think there's a lot of work being done right now into like understanding these systems better. Right, because I think in some ways a lot of people see it as a limiter on how far the technology can go. Right, if you don't really understand how the system works, would you feel comfortable implementing it in certain high stakes scenarios? Right. Um, so, looking at the stuff that you've done, you've been you've been doing a lot of projects all over, and <laughs> and seeing seeing kind of what happens and what what's what's interesting. So, what's next for you? What are you going to do next? Well, I think the project that I'm really excited about right now. Um, is that I've been thinking a great deal about um, the next generation. So, uh, and, and maybe not in the way you think. Is uh, it Star Trek or like people? Or <laughs> oh, so, yes. I've been rewatching Star Trek The Next Generation, which actually turns out to be great. Uh, it was actually, it's, I think it's actually gotten better over time in weird ways, in my opinion. Um, 
But yeah, no, uh, I started doing some history, uh, digging into the history recently of um, the term millennial, right? Because it's so interesting to me that I don't know if this was the experience in Finland, but I remember the first time I heard the word millennial, I was like, this is the worst term. I'm never, ever going to use this. And then over time, I just got forced to use it because everybody else was using it. And now I hear people basically saying like, oh, I'm such a millennial, which is like this really strange kind of like (laughs) massive, you know, mind control. And so I was digging, I was trying to dig into like, who came up with this term? Why yeah. did we even use this term? And I always thought like, oh, well, probably it was like researchers, like sociologists or like people who actually knew what they were doing. But it turned out it was like just like these two random guys who drew their conclusions largely on a completely unrepresentative district in the United States, a really rich district. And, um, and it occurred to me, I was like, well, that means like anyone can come up with a name for the next generation. And if you actually succeed at doing it, it might be like a low level form of like like social social influence wow. over the next generation. <laughs> and so I'm obsessed with this idea right now of like how do we come up with a name for the next generation? That's awesome. How do we describe the next generation? And then how do we get everybody to believe that that next generation exists? Because I, I think some of those are also like there's of course there well there might be some uh, elements of truth to them, but there's all they're also self fulfilling prophecies. Yes, that's right, exactly. <laughs> and if you think about it, it's almost like a horoscope, right? It's insane to think that everybody born at the same day yeah. or series of years yes. will have basically the same personality characteristics like maybe it's roughly true but like i don't know the world's a really big place yeah. and so uh so i'm really interested in like studying like how these things come to be and then seeing whether or not i can like get mine in there um because <laughs> right now the default looks like it'll be generation z but lots of agencies and pr firms and consulting firms are all fighting now to like put their name into the mix yeah. so So maybe you could just uh, generate a, a swarm of bots on Twitter <laughs> that start using a specific term and then get it trending and, right. and so on. Yeah. No, no comment. So. <laughs> awesome. So uh, thanks a lot for your time. Yeah, no, definitely. Thanks you for having me. Thank you for listening to yet another episode of Bossable Podcast. As always, if you liked it, share it. The next episode will be up in two weeks. This episode of Boss Level was brought to you by the kind people from Columbia Road. They're a consultancy helping clients increase revenue and get more customers. They help companies like Marimekko make more money. That's a simple way of saying that they transformed the fashion company's digital sales into agile, results-driven operations. An old friend of mine, Matti Parviainen, has been a part of the company since they set up shop a year ago. Hi, Matti. Good morning, Sami. I just wanted to have a quick chat with you. So uh, what are you guys all about? Okay, I'll be quick. We're doing our best to transform how digital commerce works. Too often people see it as an IT project where you build a web shop and then it's done. It's much more complicated than that. Like all good sales work, it's continuous and always changing. We design and develop the sales channels with this in mind. Okay, that sounds about right. Can I talk some more? Sure. Thanks. It's been my dream to be a podcast sponsor. (laughs) So um, to get great results in digital commerce, we need to work in a highly unpredictable and complex environment. We want to be super lean, but also adapt to the more standardized practices that companies have built for their business. I love doing this together with our clients. If you think Matti's job sounds interesting, you should go to columbiaroad.com slash boss level. They've managed to poach some of the best talent in the area, but are still one consultant short. 
Whether you're a designer, developer, or a business expert, Columbia Road is interested in the listeners of Boss Level. You're following the good stuff, and they would like to meet you. So go on, check out columbiaroad.com slash bosslevel, or visit their brick-and-mortar shop on Erkenkatu in downtown Helsinki. Let's talk.